create. This is a time to create. Hey, welcome back to the Wild Business Growth Podcast presented by Hippo Direct. This is your place to hear from a new entrepreneur or innovator every single Wednesday morning who's turning wild ideas into wild growth. I'm your host, Max Brandstetter, podcasting dude at Hippo Direct, and you can reach me at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life and use it as a marketing tool. This is episode number 106, and today's guest is Marcus Whitney. He has a hell of a story, which over the past couple decades has taken him from being a college dropout, moving to a new city without a job, to co-founding multiple healthcare startups, including a game-changing venture fund, bringing an MLS team to Nashville, and then releasing his number one Amazon bestseller, Create and Orchestrate. He has so many incredible entrepreneurship lessons, business lessons, life lessons, and more, and has one crazy cool perspective on life. It's Marcus Whitney. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, we are here with the man who does seemingly everything and does it exceptionally well, Marcus Whitney. Marcus, how are you doing today? Welcome. I'm good, Max, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. All right, so this has been a great conversation. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> we've been connected. I've been following your story on LinkedIn for the longest time, it seems like. And I feel like every time I check in and see the latest and greatest thing you're up to, it's, it's, it's something else and something incredibly exciting. So we're going to get to plenty through your super inspiring career today. Before we get into that, I think it's really important to take a step back to around the year 2000 when mm-hmm. you showed up in Nashville. Can you take us into that moment, what your life looked like back then? Yeah, of course. Uh, the year 2000, I arrived in Nashville on Labor Day. Uh, it was me, my wife at the time, our one-year-old, and she was pregnant. And uh, we were in a Mazda 626 and had everything that we owned in the world in that car. Drove into town. I'm wearing a a uniform for Rio Bravo Cantina, which is a Tex-Mex chain of restaurants, probably now I think better known as Chewy's. And I was looking for work and we rolled into Broadway, which is in downtown Nashville, rolled up to a Rio Bravo that we saw, you know, back then this is 2000. So you got to remember like for context, there's no smartphones, right? So it's not like I was, you know, on my iPhone looking at what was there. You know, we just drove into town. We're looking around and uh, see a real, real Bravo, tell her stop. I jump out and they're slammed. And I say, hey, I'm in the system because we had driven from Atlanta where I had previously worked at Rio Bravo. And I jumped on the <laughs> floor and was working uh, in my very first day in town. And while she drove around to try to find us a, a place to live, which ended up being a week to week motel. Oh my God. What's going through your mind when you're going to this new city you have your uniform on already, but there's no guarantee that you're going to need a job. You obviously know that you're going to need a job and to support your family as soon as you can. But what's going through your mind there? I mean, is it excitement? Is it doubt? Is it concern? You know, what's going on? 
I mean, I think a lot of everything. We emotions were very, very high. Um, we moved to Nashville to try to find some form of community. You know, my parents uh, were living in New York at the time. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, so I didn't really have any family around. And the reason why we moved to Nashville is because her best friend uh, was in Nashville, and she had gone to high school here. So that was going to be our community. And uh, you know, we it, there was just like a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of emotion. Um, but also, you know, I have to say a lot of optimism, you know, um, you know, we knew that we were willing to to work hard and and do everything we could to make it work as long as, you know, the city would and the community here would reciprocate. And, you know, we found it on day one that they were willing to let in a completely unknown person. You know, I mean, when they looked in the system because it was a corporate computer system, you know, they found my name. So there was that amount of trust there and I hadn't been fired. They knew that. So, you know, they could kind of like put me out on the floor and see what I could do. But, you know, generally speaking, Nashville really from day one was very, very uh, accepting, welcoming. And as long as I was willing to roll up my sleeves and work, uh, was willing to give me an opportunity to do that. So, you know, I, it, it was scary, but it was also uh, a time of a lot of hope, I have to say. And what was that first moment that you can remember that you kind of felt that overwhelmingly positive vibes and, and welcoming vibes in Nashville? You know, I have to say probably just getting right on the floor, you know. Um, you can tell a lot about a, about a town as a waiter, you know what I mean? Because you, you get to see the people that live there in an environment where they're relaxing, they're, they're socializing, they're spending time with friends or family or, you know, coworkers. And so it was Labor Day. So it was a, it was a holiday. So I got to, I, I got to get a good feel for the town on that very first day. Um, you know, Tex-Mex restaurants are a lot of fun. It's, you know, people are drinking margaritas and, and uh, you know, eating lots of chips and salsa. So <laughs> you're making me hungry and thirsty as we, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was a really good introduction. Honestly, it was a really good introduction. And I have this weird, you know, masochistic edge where I look back on those days of waiting tables very fondly, you know, knowing they were super hard. There were days I would come home with no money, you know, hands always burned, back always hurting. But there is something about that whole thing of, of just A, walking home every day with, with cash in, in hand and B, earn what you make. You know, you walk up to the table and it's about the quality of service and the experience that you deliver for that person. And you know, sometimes you, you get people that are just, it doesn't matter what you do, they're not going to tip you well. Um, but there are many times when your performance directly correlates to sort of what you make. And, um, you know, there's lots of like little micro lessons in there in, the, in that experience. And so um, I, I was just, I am always very grateful that I spent you know, several years of my, you know, early professional career as a waiter. Um, just, I, I think it was really good for perspective and also just understanding deeply the importance of service. Absolutely. I mean, that's customer service to a T you're, you're from day one, you're actually meeting with actual customers and you can see how a lot of the times the way that your service is reflected in how you're compensated and so on. There's so many lessons there at a certain point you made the jump from that gig to teaching yourself how to code and getting more into the tech side of things. How did that come about? Yeah. So, you know, for all the fun things that exist about, you know, waiting tables, um, it's not a great, you know, most of my coworkers were not married, did not have children for the most part. Right. Um, 
mostly young people, musicians, you know, where where the job is really appropriate for the age and the and the phase of life and other things they want to do. I was young, I was 24, but you know, I was still uh, a young dad. And so I needed to do something very different. Our living situation was very, very sort of uh, touch and go, you know, week to week motel, you're paying way more than you should for way less than you need. But you know, it's, it's hard to get uh, a lease, you know, for a great place when you're waiting tables. I mean, you know, we did eventually get a, a nice lease and a little duplex and, you know, get out of that space. But ultimately I knew we're about to have this baby. We need healthcare. There's all these things. I knew I needed a salary job. I, you know, I knew I just needed to get out of this situation where every day was just fight for every dollar you make. So yeah, so I, you know, it was the year 2000. That was the dot-com boom approaching the dot-com bust. There were lots of stories out there around high school kids who were making, you know, 80, 90, $100,000. And uh, what I didn't mention was that I was a college dropout. So, you know, I didn't have a degree and I'm brand new in this town. So, you know, I just sort of quickly wrap my head around this idea that in the middle of the dot-com boom, even in Nashville, Tennessee, if I could teach myself how to code, I could get a job. And, you know, the kind of job that would really sort of dramatically change my, my life from a, a, you know, economic mobility perspective. And, um, and so, so I started working on it. I would go to the bookstore and buy books and take them home and bring them to the restaurant with me in between tables. I'd be reading pages and go home and, uh, you know, I was working like double shifts, so I have to fit it in at night, but teach myself JavaScript, teach myself uh, back then ASP, teach myself cold fusion, all these, you know, all these like totally flash technology, all these like really outdated things now. But in 2000, before mobile phones really hit, these were the, the technologies at the time. Yeah, cutting edge. Yeah, totally. And, uh, and taught myself that stuff. And, and over the course of eight months, um, got good enough to start applying for jobs and the day after my uh, my youngest son was born, I uh, got a job offer called HealthStream. That was just, uh, it was life-changing. Of course, it always happens like that, right? Like it can't just be one major life event at a time. It's got to be, a new door opens right when your life completely changes with another child, right? Dude, it, it was, it was the, it was like someone wrote that for me. You know what I mean? Like a script. Um, you know, when it, I just remember, the, the birth of our son was was wonderful and he was healthy and we were really happy we were really happy about that and you know not really thinking that much about money at the time but you know I was in the middle of you know applying for a lot of different jobs and then you know getting that letter in the mail and opening it up and seeing that I got the job was just like unbelievable I mean just you know the way that felt uh, was you know still I, I I can remember that really vividly because it was it was a day that completely changed my life. And that kind of foreshadows some next steps of your career that we'll get into. But in kind of looking at that phase of your life, what's the biggest lesson, the number one lesson you took from those days waiting tables and going back, making sure you had enough to pay for the hotel? What's the biggest lesson you took away from that? I think, honestly, uh, being optimistic and having an incredible work ethic, those are kind of, they're super basic, basic things, but they're not that easy to do, quite frankly, you know, I mean, especially when you're, um, when you're being faced with a ton of stress, just this idea of like staying positive, staying optimistic. I got the job at HealthStream, but I had applied it, you know, probably 20 other places, you know, so, 
you know, getting turned down and, and really feeling like, wow, you know, this uh, applying for technology jobs with no prior experience and no college degree is not really that great of an idea. <laughs> hey, you're thinking outside the box. <laughs> yeah, you know, but to, to have it actually land is, you know, was just about, it was just about being optimistic, you know, and, and being positive. And, and, I, and I think that that's, that's ultimately what got me the job. It was, certainly wasn't the credentials, you know, it was being positive and optimistic in, in my interview process, right? Um, and then I think hard work. I mean, uh, you know, working six and a half days a week. You know, so I would work double shifts as often as I could during the week. And then um, I actually had a second restaurant job on the weekends um, at a restaurant called La Peep, which was a brunch space. And so I, I would... going to say, that sounds familiar. I might have actually yeah, been. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was there or a different city, but I've definitely been there before. Yeah, they, they, well, well, they have them in like Denver and Atlanta, which is where I was at. So they, they have them in, in many different cities. But you know, it's a, it's a you know it's a great little little brunch place, and uh, you do real well. La Peep ended up being in a in a neighborhood in Nashville called Bell Mead. Now I'm I'm new to town. I don't really know where any any of these uh, you know neighborhoods are in terms of like what's the socioeconomic edge to them? You know, who lives there? What's the makeup of the city? Later, I would find out that Bellmead is, you know, basically the, the old school wealth neighborhood in, in Nashville. And so I was waiting tables on the, really the wealthiest families in, in Nashville. And just, you know, like I knew it, but I didn't really know it. I didn't have context for it. And uh, I actually was waiting on the family that, uh, that owned HealthStream, you know, the first family. Oh, wow. Uh, they're one of the big, you know, three or four, depending on how you slice it, families here in here in Nashville, and they're like the big healthcare family. They they started HCA and and HealthStream was started by Bobby Frist. So yeah, you know, it it was it was just one of those things where you had to work really hard. You know, I I wasn't on the hiring side, so I don't know how the conversations went. But my my belief and understanding is that how I showed up. Uh, waiting tables somehow got back to the folks at at HealthStream and you know was part of that decision making process and I think that's you know it doesn't matter what you're doing you know you just kind of show up and you work hard and and you you stay positive and optimistic and it's like people people remember that you know what I mean that is something you can parlay um, across positions across industries uh, over many many years just like the way that you you make people feel based on just uh, you know integrity right frankly. Yeah, it's priceless and you can't really, it's kind of one of those intangible things. You can't lay it out on a chart and say like, hey, you have to be this nice to people in order for good things to happen. But it just, there's something about it. There's some magic about it. If you're always focused on being kind and being positive, being optimistic, there's no limit on what it can lead you to. So let's get to your entrepreneurial ventures. After you started getting into different jobs and getting more into the healthcare space, what point did it click for you that, hey, I want to start my own company? Yeah. So, at, you know, I had multiple false starts, um, you know, I, I, I only, <laughs> throw the flag. I, yeah, man. I mean, I, I, I only lasted at HealthStream for a year because um, they, they were not a big company when I was there. They're a much bigger company now, but they were publicly traded. So, you know, it's a little under 200 people that were there. And man, I had no soft skills. I didn't know, you know, as much as I worked hard and, and I was positive, I didn't understand office politics. I didn't understand chain of command. And, you know, I was, I was, you know, out of line in, in multiple instances, far exceeding, you know, my rank or quite frankly, my capabilities. It was all just sort of ambition run amok. And so I ended up, you know, leaving for a better job in a smaller company a year later. And that was, these were all sort of the steps towards 
better understanding who I am, you know, in terms of self-awareness and my personality, this, what I call the ambitious creative rebel type, the person who they're just not satisfied working for anyone else. Um, it's just at the end of the day, and there's no good reason for it, quite frankly. You know, I don't want to say that I'm a bad employee, but it's just sort of the way I'm wired. And so uh, I, I spent seven years as a professional um, technologist. You know, I started at Hellstream, and at the end of that seven-year run, I was the head of technology at an email marketing company called Emma. Yeah. That was sold to Campaign Monitor, you know, a couple of years back. I kind of progressed from Hellstream being the biggest company that I've ever worked at uh, down to smaller companies. When I started at Emma in 2003, I was the fifth or sixth employee, depending on how you, how you count it grew with them up until 50 and, and kind of, as we grew, it was great. You know, I, I, I earned equity. I learned more about leadership. I got to grow a team and all that other kind of stuff, but you know, you start making money and you get to 50 people and bureaucracy happens and you know, it gets to be less fun for someone like me. So I headed out of there and, and 2007 uh, was the beginning of my venture, my true venture where I never really looked back um, into entrepreneurship. And I failed plenty after that, but, uh, but you know, that was the real jump off point for me. So that was your non-false start. We'll call 2007 the non-false start. It was the real. That's right. The, the true start. That's right. And, and shout out, shout out Emma. That's cool that you were there so early. I mean, still to this day, I get the Emma newsletter in my inbox every week. And it's, nice. ama- I mean, true, true thought leader in the email marketing space, but uh, it's amazing. You carved out such a awesome role for yourself early on there. Yeah, you know, again, timing and, uh, you know, in, in, in my book, we're, we're not jumping to that, but I, but I will just say like- in, we, we, we can jump, we can, we, can, we can fall start if you want, it's okay. The guy who I had write the forward to my book is Clint Smith, who's the co-founder uh, and, and original CEO of Emma, and just a really good friend, really good friend of mine. And um, being that early in and watching him and his partner, Will Weaver, they were the, the, the co-CEOs, if you will, uh, for at least the entire time I was there, you know, watching how they did it, watching how they managed their partnership, how they led, you know, Clint was the first person to teach me like how powerful writing could be for business. Those Emma emails that you're talking about. I mean, that, that was, that was him. You know what I mean? Like just him really understanding the power of communication, the power of brand. I, I learned so much from, from those guys. And so, yeah, you know, when I left, I, I, I left on incredibly good terms, you know, um, sold my stock back to the company and um, got some, some, some capital to be able to start what I was doing. Of course, I, I also ended up uh, getting separated from my wife at that time. So a lot of that, you know, stock sell back went to alimony, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> Again, another major life moment that times up with another <laughs> major professional moment. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You know, I just wanted to say Emma was... Uh, really, really a great um, four-year run for me and very formative, even, even to this day, you know, very formative in terms of how I think about business. And then when you got more into the entrepreneurial space, so, you know, you started businesses on the healthcare side, you've started it on the venture capital side, which is really on the healthcare side as well. So kind of multiple levels there. What was the biggest adjustment and kind of what was your sensation or reaction to finally not working for somebody else i mean you're finally you're finally in charge you're finally you know calling the shots kind of like you always felt like you were destined to be but it never you never truly had that until this moment what's that like it felt really good but it's also like another level of responsibility you know and 
I feel like that is so much of what I've learned about since 2007 is you want the freedom, but freedom's not free. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, thank God I had a really strong work ethic and had that disposition that was generally pretty positive and optimistic because being the boss is, is a heavy burden. You know, it's lonely and it's very, very hard. And especially when you're inexperienced and you don't understand a lot of the important principles around leadership, specifically in business, you make a ton of really hard mistakes. When you hire people, you know, you don't understand how serious that, that engagement is. And it's, you know, it's like really serious. Um, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not quite like a marriage or anything, but I mean, people are depending on you and, you know, there's the principal agent problem where, you know, they're not the owner, but you think that they should behave like they're an owner and, you know, there's misalignment there. And, you know, we also were headed into this window of time where people started to rewrite the rules around what the employer employee relationship should look like, you know, should, you know, should an employer be trying to make their employees happy? I mean, you know, these weren't things that were really considered, quite frankly, you know, uh, prior to the 21st century, I would say. And so, it was hard. There was a lot to learn and those lessons came very hard. I did not have uh, great mentors, uh, you know, along the way, probably my own fault. I, I didn't have bad mentors. I really just didn't have mentors. I had coworkers. I had people I worked with sometimes that had more experience than me and offered me what they could. But at the end of the day, when you're partnering with somebody, it's like you can't really be mentored by them, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So you have to keep your own boundaries with that person. So it just was a lot of hard lessons. That's what I learned. I, I, I gained a whole new level of appreciation for Clinton Will, for the people at Hellstream who I didn't treat that well, you know, <laughs> when I was there as an employee, <laughs> you know, I just realized how hard it was. And um, it's, it's a lot easier when you're not the person, you're not the boss. Yeah, it's a totally, it's totally different. such a different mindset there. Would love to dive into some of the stops along the way there. So a couple of your ventures that come to mind, uh, not to overuse venture the pun, but uh, well, there's the, your venture fund, which jumpstart, and then you have your health further. You're in the same ballpark with both of those, but also doing very different things. Which of those two has been more of a challenge to build? It depends on the timing, right? So um so they've both been hard and they've both sort of fed each other. So, you know, Jumpstart is a, is a, is a venture fund and it's, it's really interesting. We're in our sixth year and man, the first five years of any business is like when you're, it's just like the first five years of life, right? You know, you think about it, like you don't start going to school until you're like, you know, five, six years old. Right. And so there's this, this interesting, you know, play on chronology there with a business. It takes you the first five years to kind of figure out who you are, but also to be credible, you know? So we have around $46 million under management today. The first year, we only could get $1.5 million under management. You know, the next year, we got another two. Under, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, man, it's really, really hard, actually, to, like, grow assets under management, you know, and to be credible and to learn how to pick great deals and to manage a portfolio and to do board-level work and build relationships that can lead companies into great customer relationships or potential exits, right. Or, or great partnerships. So just that entire, and, and, you know, for someone like me who's a college dropout, like learning the, the terminology, 
you know, learning the structure of a deal, um, learning about financing terms, uh, you know, so many things, learning, learning about uh, the regulatory space, you know, all the different contracts that are needed, how you actually make money, how, how you process returns when they come in. You know, just, there, there's just so many things that are at play that you, that you have to learn. And so uh, for me, you know, that was really, really difficult. Health Further was more straightforward. It started as a conference um, and then it evolved into a strategic advisory once we, you know, once the, once the brand was solid enough and we had the right level of relationships. But that was hard in a different way. Uh, you know, it was very, very hard to throw an event. You know, we're, we're throwing events at the Music City Center, which is a convention center with 2,000 people coming. We're selling tickets, selling sponsorships. We're, you know, handling all the food and beverage and trade floors and speakers and agendas and digital apps and just a nightmarish amount of work unbelievably terrible amount of work. I, I like that word nightmarish, by the way. That's, I don't think you could describe it more vividly. Oh, it's brutal. I, you know, for, for, for quite frankly, like very little profit, you know what I mean? Like it's not a, it's right. not a highly profitable business. What it is, is a very leverageable business because at the end you are the convener, you have this network, you have learned so much, you're building the brand, you're the connector. So, you know, that's why you do something like that. And, and, you know, after four years, I just got tired of the event part of it and said, let's, let's just do the advisory piece. And that, and that was easy and hard. Like, so it was easy to get the first couple of contracts uh, in place and then hard to scale because there are other companies that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you're the new person on the block. So again, you know, you kind of go back to square one of everything is hard and how do you stand out? And when you haven't done something before, who's going to be the early adopter to, to trust you and give you a shot at it? So everything, everything has got its, its difficulties to it. I will say, you know, what makes things easier over time, and this has been a really interesting year for me to sort of to, to feel that, to feel that over time, things get easier because I'm more credible. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, you, you reached out to me and you're like, okay, dude, you've done like X, Y, Z, you know, I'd love to have you on the show. That's exactly what I said, by the way. Basically. Right. You know, and, and like <laughs> five years ago, you wouldn't have said that. Right. Because uh, there was no soccer. I didn't have any funds under management. I hadn't thrown health further. You know, the Emma thing would have been sort of the only thing. So you get to this point where the body of work sort of speaks for itself and you're, your lead time on closing a deal or trying to get to a point of credibility shrinks. Um, and thank God for that. Cause you get older, you don't have the energy or the time for that. You know what I mean? So like, you know, yeah. especially when you're spending years putting together giant events and working on dozens of millions of uh, venture deals. Exactly. That, that, that doesn't that, listen. And this is the important part that by the way, like doesn't make you that rich. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the venture business takes seven to 10 years to mature, to actually like return, proper wealth to the to the general partner so first three four years you're not getting rich off that you're not getting rich off the conference you're not getting rich off of a soccer team because that takes hundreds of millions of dollars of investment so like what are you really doing you're setting up a platform for the future you know what i mean you're setting up a yeah. platform for the future that you can then leverage and so quite frankly that's where i am you know i'm at this point where I've got ownership in these entities. They're built, they're up and running, they're viable. I've got a book, you know, I've got a podcast. I've like got all the stuff. And now, and, and, and I, like, I, I want to be like super transparent with people about that stuff. Like, you know, I own a house and, you know, I'm not, I'm not broke, you know, my kids go to college and, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm fine, you know, but like, you know, like we're not rolling in it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I've got assets. These assets still have to mature. I've, you right. know, I've, 
I've still got work I've got to do out here, man, you know, and, and um, yeah, I got a DM the other day from somebody who was like, you know, hey, you know, I see you, you know, you're so connected here in Nashville. How, how can I really, you know, break into the fold? And so I asked the person like, hey, you know, how long have you been here? And they're like, you know, a couple of months, but I'm here for good now. And I'm like, okay, awesome. So it took me three years to get my first meaningful position, seven years for my name to, for my name to mean anything. My name had no value in Nashville until I left Emma. It took me seven years. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy to take a step back and think about that. And I think no matter what you're doing, the more years of experience you have under your belt or the more kind of different chapters of different experiences you have, it just adds such another level of credibility, especially when you have the mindset that you have like the entrepreneurial, the optimist, and I can get a sense of the masochist side of kind of always going after the challenge or the hard thing, you know, years and years of hard lessons, hard lessons, hard learning. And so it's, it really does take a lot of patience to go along with everything. And so you're truly exemplifying that. When you look at those businesses in the healthcare space and how much you've grown. I mean, you, you mentioned the numbers on the venture fund side, but also, you know, how you've pivoted from having in-person events to the more advisory side. What is the top business growth lesson that comes to mind from leading the charge with both of those businesses? You do a lot of different things when you're first starting because you have no idea what's going to stick. So your energy is kind of dispersed across many different things. And over time, you have to whittle that down to the things that work. And then you have to maximize the things that work to yield as much as they possibly can for you. You know, that's what we've done. I mean, when we first, when Vic and I first started Jumpstart, I mean, we were doing all sorts of stuff. And it was like, I I mean, I, I can't even run through the list, but like, you know, in addition to our first fund that we were raising and, and deploying and managing, we also had other revenue generating projects that we were doing that were not core at all to what we were doing, but like, we didn't know what we were doing yet. You know, we were just sort of out there hustling. We're hustling, you know? Yeah. And over time you start realizing, okay, the hustle is good. It helps you figure out who you are, who you want to be when you grow up, what works, what doesn't, but you got to know when to put that stuff away and you got to know when to kind of, you know, make the main thing, the main thing. And then when you understand what the main thing is, then you got to like understand how to maximize it, right? Like what is the growth path for the main thing? And so, you know, it's, it's how do you go from like 1.5 million to let's call it 3.5 million raised to like 6 million to 30 million, right? You make a strategic decision to raise a different kind of fund, right? And you use the brand and the and the credibility and all the other stuff that you did to build a story that makes sense for that next level fund to happen. You know, that's it. You know, that's that's the thing that you do over time is is you you whittle away the things that are not core. You get the core, you make the core the core, and then you figure out how to actually grow it and maximize it. In in a natural kind of natural next step. And by that I mean not natural whatsoever, but completely awesome. Your, I'll call it entrepreneurial ventures in the professional soccer space. And for anyone who's not familiar, you're part of the team that really rallied around Nashville from a soccer standpoint and ultimately help bring a soccer team, an MLS team to Nashville. So Nashville Soccer Club, first of all, congratulations on that. I'm sure that's was 
so much time in the works and actually making it happen. When you were younger, uh, or even when you were starting off your career, did you have aspirations to be involved from the professional sports or professional soccer standpoint? Absolutely not. It was not at all anything I was thinking about. So, you know, one of the things that I did a lot that helped build the credibility was I, I involved myself in a variety of different community initiatives. And some bucket of that would be just kind of the nonprofit space. So, you know, sitting on boards, Habitat for Humanity, um, the Library Foundation, you know, things like that, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Metro Arts Commissioner, so that's like a mayor-appointed position working with, uh, you know, the arts agency for the city. So, so I do those kinds of things. And soccer actually really landed in my lap through that. We had a nonprofit uh, community-based organization called Nashville Football Club um, that started, you know, five and a half years ago and uh, seeking to fill the space that was left by our pro-am uh, fourth division soccer team, the Nashville Metros that had lived a multi-decade life, um, but the owners had to sort of shut it down. And so I started just as a, a member. I paid my dues like everybody else. Um, the first year it was up and running, uh, you know, went from just a five-a-side fun uh, family neighborhood thing to acquiring a franchise in the fourth division with the National Premier Soccer League and playing a season and making it to the playoffs and drawing 1,000 to 2,000 people per, per match. And so off of that momentum, the founder, Chris Jones, um, and I, you know, we kept having an email dialogue about how well it was going and um, if I could be helpful. One day he asked me out to lunch and said, listen, you know, this thing was like lightning in a bottle. I could use your help to really, you know, maximize it. You know, I've got this board, we're hard workers, but like, we just don't understand how to like scale a venture. So, you know, can you come in and help us with that? So I said, yes, you know, bring me on the board. So they did, they made me the chairperson, um, chairman of the board. And from there, um, everything just sort of went uh, a thousand miles an hour. Um, I joined the board, I, you know, the first things I was doing was just basic stuff, like looking at trademarks, IPs, what was our e-commerce system? How was, how are we doing member management? You know, the, the basics, right? Um, but also establishing a vision that we could make it to the major league, you know, level. We had a story that popped out in our local newspaper, the Tennessean here, uh, probably six months after I started as a chairperson, that uh, said that an outside group was looking at bringing professional soccer to Nashville. It wasn't major league level. It was uh, in a league called the United Soccer League. At the time was third division, now is, is second division soccer. We had to sort of respond to that. And so uh, we did, we responded publicly and said, look, you know, if professional soccer is gonna happen here, we're gonna do it. And that just started the process. You know, we, we started talking to our members about, you know, would you guys be supportive if we went this direction? Because if you go pro, you can't really be a nonprofit anymore. You have to kind of turn into a for-profit entity. Um, it helped that I had already been doing Jumpstart. So I understood a lot about how to pitch for investment, for private investment, and how to like put together that pitch deck and how to, you know, um, have a pitch, hold a pitch event. So that's what I did. I just, I just put together a pitch event, you know, put together a pitch deck and we, we, we pitched to local investors and uh, we met David Dill, who then was the president of LifePoint Health. Today he's the CEO and he stepped up as the, the lead investor. He brought along uh, a very good family friend and a great entrepreneur along with him, Chris Redditch. Uh, and so those guys signed up and then through the talks, they said that they really wanted me to be part of the ownership group. So we negotiated all that stuff with uh, the organization. I stepped down as the chairman and joined the ownership group and 
then we, we closed the deal. Um, and we got a, we got a, a franchise in the United Soccer League, um, which at that point was second division. So we were set to play. And then Major League Soccer opened up their expansion news and said, you know, we're, we're going to add four more teams. Um, local billionaire John Ingram decided he wanted to go for it. And uh, I knew John. John. John and I sat on the board of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center together. And John was an, an investor in Jumpstart. So, you know, it's like being involved in the community at least opened the door for us to have a conversation. Very uh, long, thoughtful negotiation. And we ended up selling <laughs> you know, a majority of our club to him in exchange for um, percentage of the major league soccer team in the event that we were actually able to get it closed. And, uh, and then we did. And so we kind of went in as, as one happy family to make a major league soccer bid and we got it done. We were the first expansion team, you know, so we played two seasons in the United soccer league, which was fun and was grateful for that. And this was, you know, supposed to be our first season in major league soccer, but you know, the pandemics had, better plans for everybody. So mm, yeah. sort of dealing with all of that craziness, but still at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're, we're grateful to be here in the game. Yeah. That's incredible. It's gotta be so cool and, and different to be, have a leadership role in the sports world as well as in the business world. You're kind of, you kind of got a hybrid there. What's the biggest difference you notice about working with professional sports versus other areas of professional life? how many misconceptions there are around the idea that somehow professional sports are not a business, you know, um, all these clubs yeah. are run by CEOs with front offices that have, you know, a head of operations, a head of marketing, you know what I mean? Like, you know, legal, what I did was the ownership piece, but like, I'm not really that involved. You know, there's a full organization of, uh, very experienced sports professionals where this is what they went to school for. And, you know, they've been working at various clubs in different leagues for their entire career. And that was the part I had no idea about. I didn't understand it's an industry like everything else and that people are skilled and experienced and well-traveled and know what they're doing. And it's not a joke. You know, it's not a joke. And, and uh, the, re the money is there because of high performing people. And so that was that was the, the big thing for me was just, you know, hiring the very first CEO and just realizing, wow, you know, we, we hired somebody from the league office, um, you know, the ma major league soccer office, you know, who had been running international soccer for them for years to come run our club. And that was actually a step up for him because, you know, he got the opportunity to be a CEO, whereas he wasn't going to be the CEO of major league soccer. So it, it was a it was a step up in his career. And then when we went to major league soccer. Um, John recruited. Ian Eyre, who is the, you know, who was the CEO of Liverpool, you know, the most oh, wow. recent Champions League and, and Premier League champions. And so that's our CEO. Our CEO is the former CEO of Liverpool who brought Jurgen Klopp there. So you know, that's, you start, that's amazing. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so like, and, and, and now he's a friend and he's just like a normal guy. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, he's not a normal guy, but he's a normal guy, man. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think right. that the, I think that is the part of all of this that has been the most uh, surprising, but surprising in a really good way. You know what I mean? Is is just understanding it's not that different. But people on the outside don't get that because it's so mystical, right? You know, sports business. And so they'll come yeah. and ask me for like a million things. And I'm like, I don't do any of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I have no control over it. Um, you know, and quite frankly, like, and John Ingram, who's the majority owner, like, he doesn't have any control. Like, he's hired a great team of like very seasoned, experienced professionals and they run the club. You know what I mean? Like, John's not in there helicoptering and telling everybody what to do all the time. You know, he's, he's hired great people. They run the club every day. Just like you would run, you know, just like we run our businesses. 
Absolutely. And I think as a sports fan, it's so easy to get into that trap of just because it's a thing that is so easy to get passionate about that you think about it on the sports level or the entertainment level, or for some, it's kind of that level of escapism, but there's always that business side of thing that's underlying everything. And so it's, it's always good to, to remind yourself that, Hey, there's, <laughs> there's way more that goes into this than just what what's happening on the field or the pitch. And so much of what we've talked about, you have talked about or alluded to in your book, Create and Orchestrate, which congrats on being a number one Amazon bestseller. That's amazing. Out of the gate there, it's, I, I know the reviews for the book are, are just blowing up. And this is something that I think is so cool because not only were you writing the book for years and years, and this is something that you were thinking about for a while. I mean, it has stories that basically have come from your lifetime. So it's really like you've been working for this book your whole life. What has that experience been like actually putting pen to paper and sharing the lessons that you've learned in book form and then finally and ultimately releasing something that you've been working on for so long? You know, I don't want to speak in hyperbole, but I do think this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Completing this book, very, 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 very difficult. Very difficult. It took me five years and, you know, it wasn't five straight years. There were there was a year where I like didn't write, you know what I mean? Because um, some of the stuff I was going through was really difficult and sort of, you know, made me question whether or not I was the person to write the book, you know, whether or not I felt the same way I did when I started the book about, about entrepreneurship. So, you know, it was kind of one of those turn, turn me inside out experiences. Having said that, you know, I just told my wife this morning that I think everybody should write a book. It's difficult, but man, when you get on the other side of it, there, there are just very few things that you could, that you can do that are so meaningful. And, and it's not for money. It's just this idea that you, take the time to organize your thoughts and your beliefs and your experiences into something that anyone can buy for $6.99 digitally and have immediately and could potentially <laughs> change your life. You know what I mean? It's like the best, it really is the best deal on earth, like a book. I, you know, yeah. now having trudged through the process of getting one out the door and knowing that people can buy this thing for $7, um, you know, or, or they can get the really fancy, you know, hard, cover edition for 25. Okay, fine. It's, it's just like the best deal ever. You know what I mean? Because it's like my blood is in this book, you know, like for real, this, this is the book. I wrote the book. I wish I had, um, you know, when in 2007, when I left Emma, this is the book I wish I had, you know, that, that I believe would have, would have helped me to do better and to, you know, run into less brick walls. And so, I, I just think writing a book is a very difficult and very fulfilling thing. I'm so glad I did it. I'm so grateful for the um, the response I've received and for the impact it's already made in such a short time. And I'm looking forward to ha- getting it in more people's hands and, and hopefully uh, changing more people's lives with it. And that's the fun part, right? Yeah. It's something that you've been working on so much. I was actually thinking of asking you, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? And without me even asking, you've answered that. So, but there are lots of lessons in the book, hard lessons, as you've talked about. What is the biggest lesson that you hope that you really, really instill in the minds of readers? Yeah, I mean, I I think, I think the core thing is, is that this whole 
entrepreneurship thing is ultimately a journey and is not about a destination. And it's really about your mindset as you take this journey on. So there's, there's like, you know, there's several kind of mindsets that I try to articulate throughout the book. You know, there's the mindset of the hustler hacker hero that I try to articulate. There's the mindset of orchestration. There's the mindset of partnership. There's the mindset of leadership. These are all mindsets that I, I, I try to kind of pull out and shine a light on because they're, they're really, really important. They're, they're multidimensional and they help you in a myriad of different situations. But, you know, ultimately it's a, it, this is a journey, right? It's like, I wrote this book about 20 years of my life and Max, I'm, I'm 44. Like, dude, I'm young. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah. like even, even in, even in the context of like an entrepreneur's career, I'm young young i got two more of those in me absolutely you know what i'm saying and so like that's the thing it's it's like this is a journey and you know god willing you know if you're healthy you're gonna live for a while and so you know don't be in such a huge rush to like get something done and understand like there are different things at different phases you are where you are you know wherever phase you're at that's where you're at and that's totally cool you won't be there forever so try to enjoy it but try to act as skillfully as you can in that moment because how you act in that moment will impact you know that next moment that you're going to have so focus on you know developing those skills technical skills sure but but also those mindset skills those skills around leadership those skills around orchestration those skills around you know, how to structure and design a business, the skills around how to, how to kind of hack clever new pathways for yourself. Those are, those are all sort of the things. And it's such a powerful message. So congrats again. I really appreciate you putting it all in book form. I know it's something that you might've, yeah, maybe worked on for more than just one or two hours. So it's got got to feel good to put it out there. It does. As Marcus said, it is a journey. Nothing happens overnight. And something that would be awesome for you to have on your journey is a banging podcast. How awesome would that be to have a podcast you update every week, every two weeks, whenever you want to send out new episodes that helps promote your brand, helps connect you with amazing people, can even lead to business results. Even better, How would you like a high-quality, professionally produced podcast that you don't have to take the time yourself to go through every single week and edit? That's what I'm here for. You can email me at max at hippodirect.com. I will help you save time with your podcast as well as produce that high-quality, professionally-sounding podcast that you're looking for. Email me at max at hippodirect.com. Let's bring your podcast to life. Now, back to Marcus. Is going to tell you a little bit more about his journey and something really cool he came across online. So let's get to a fan favorite segment called the Wild Business Shoutout of the Week. The Wild Business Shoutout of the Week! Wild Business Shoutout of the Week. This is where we talk about a brand or campaign that's doing something really breakthrough. And you may have heard about it or you may not have, but if you have heard about it, there's some very passionate chatter about it. Clubhouse. Marcus, can you take us through kind of a brief background of how you heard about Clubhouse and what excites you about it? Yeah, man. Clubhouse is really interesting. I started seeing Clubhouse on Twitter, people talking about Clubhouse on Twitter. I follow this guy on Twitter. Uh, his name is Webb Smith, and his Twitter handle is at Webb. He's basically the smartest guy uh, online 
about e-commerce out there. He, he has a publication called 2PM. It's just brilliant, you know, and I just, and I believe big time in e-commerce. And so I follow him and I listen to what he says. And, you know, he started talking about these clubhouse conversations that he was in and, you know, sharing screenshots and stuff like this. And this was, this was months ago, it, you know, it was during the pandemic, um, but it was still months ago. And, and uh, I was just like, what is this thing? So I started like Googling it and finding out that it's this like invite only Silicon Valley thing, which, you know, kind of made my eyes roll to be completely honest with you. <laughs> I think that's everybody's reaction at first is kind of, yeah. there, there's some uncertainty there. Like, okay, what is this? Totally, totally. Like, like it definitely made my eyes roll, but you know, some of the screenshots were showing, you know, these conversations where like Webb was in a room with, you know, I don't know, Mark Andreessen and like Oprah, you know what I mean? And you're like, what is going on here? You know what I mean? Like who doing what? And, you know, over time, what I came to understand is clubhouse is an audio chat app and I wouldn't have even understood what that was like until I actually got in, but it's this audio chat app where it's invite only. The invites are very, very infrequently given out. So it's a very sort of well-managed group of people who are given access, but it is, it is ultimately referral based, but people don't have a ton of invites to give, you know, there's no official website that you can go to, to get, to, to get it. And it's not even in the app store. So it's, it's test flight only. Like you can't even, you know, you can't even like download it and like have it on your phone. Uh, you know, it's only on test flight. You got to get an invite to get access to the test flight app, the whole thing. And so, you know, this, this whole idea of doing this very extended, exclusive public beta, right? Where the people who have been on there are just like, this is life changing. And then, you know, here's the punchline is I, I got on probably three weeks ago and man, I didn't turn it off for a week. You know, it, it replaced my podcast listening, you know, because, because here's the thing, you don't have to be engaged in the chat. They call it step up to the stage. Um, so you can go into a room and you can just listen to a conversation. You don't have to actually engage in the conversation. And man, these conversations are unbelievable. There, sometimes there's two people, sometimes there's 20 people <laughs> on the stage. And these conversations are unbelievable. You never know who you're going to hear from. You know, I, I, one night I'm just like hanging out on there and jumped into this room and Virgil Abloh, who's the you know, creative direct, black creative director for um, Louis Vuitton, was on there just talking about his whole experience of doing that, you know, and like, and just talking with a bunch of other people who I didn't know, but you know, that was even more cool, right? It's just that, that you know, there's one well-named person in there and the rest, uh, I was in there, there's, there's this club called Casa Club where they're always speaking Spanish and Tif Tiffany Haddish was in there and they were all just like talking about the, you know, these Spanish sayings across different uh, nationalities. So like, you know, these, you know, in Spain, here's a Spanish saying, or in Mexico, here's a Spanish saying, or, you know, you know what I mean? And, and like Tiffany's just in there like cracking jokes and like trying to guess what things mean. And it's just crazy. It's crazy. They have these like dinner clubs on Saturday nights that Felicia Horowitz, who's Ben Horowitz's wife, you know, hosts and these incredibly deep, awesome conversations. So, you know, I can now say it exceeded what I thought it was going to deliver now that I'm on the inside. I don't have an invite to give to anybody. <laughs> Thank you. That was my next question. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't have an invite. So so I got <laughs> in, but I can't get anybody else in. They're building a very loyal following of people who are rabid fans that, man, whenever this thing does explode, I think I think the growth is going to be, you know, one for the record books. Honestly, they're dialing in the product really well. 
So like if you're inside, you're, get, you're getting all these like these new releases like, you know, three times a week and the features are meaningful when they release them. So yeah, it's a really, really interesting. We've seen this before in f- different flavors, but this is a public beta release, kind of unlike anything I've ever seen. And I think that's the big question, right? Is are they going to be able to keep that level of exclusivity or this really previously unseen access to hearing directly from some of the biggest and most influential names out there as they scale? So that's going to be really interesting to see, especially once you know they give you referral access and you can refer me. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. But I, I was cracking up when you brought up Clubhouse because uh, shout out my friend Mike Orden in Australia who in a previous Zoom call that my buddy Alex and I had with him uh, earlier in the pandemic we were just chatting about things and I think legitimately half of the call or this call lasted for three hours and half the call he was talking about Clubhouse and he would literally said the same thing that look when I discovered this it literally took over my time that I would usually spend listening to podcasts or watching Netflix like all my social media apps it literally consumed his life because it was so interesting and clearly that's happened to you or at least for a little bit as well so there's clearly something to it so it'd be really interesting to see how it shakes out yeah no there's no question there's something to it and the conversations are truly fantastic uh they they really are i i think it's going to be big i think it's going to be big i think they do they are going to have to figure out the scale part of it and how that's all going to work yeah now because it is so small it's very, you're very free to kind of move in and around and get access to everything. And that will be interesting to see how they, how they handle that part of it. Let's wrap up with some rapid fire Q and A. You ready for it? Yep, I'm ready. All right, let's get wild. So we're going to talk about clubhouse. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> who is your favorite before you're involved in ownership, obviously, yeah. Maybe growing up, who's your favorite soccer player of all time? Uh, Pele. Heard of him. When you were waiting tables, I'm sure there's at least one meal that comes to mind that smelled so good every time that it was hard not to take a bite on the way to the table. <laughs> what meal is that that comes to mind? Oh, man. Um, it, it would have to be, you know, something from uh, Rio Bravo and probably fajitas just because like when you bring them out, the steam is like running up your nose. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, so it's a tear to your eye. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fajitas were always kind of tough. And you know, if, if you, if you ended up selling a bunch of those by the end of the day, you wanted one for sure. <laughs> That's a great answer. And I think fajitas, now that I think of it to this day, it's one of the only meals that when a server walks it out or runs it out to the table, everybody turns their head and you don't see that too often. Literally everybody in the restaurant is turning their head because the, you know, the steam is or smoke is going up in the air. That's a good one. And and the sizzle too, right? The sizzle is a big part of it. The sound. Absolutely. Oh, gotta love that sizzle. What activity or hobby do you have that when you're doing it, it makes you feel most creative or good time for brainstorming or ideating? You know, it's not really supposed to be this, but meditation. So I meditate about 20, 20 minutes a day and, um, uh, not 20 hours. No, no, no. I, I, I recalibrated. Uh, <laughs> I think day. like koala bears kind of do that, but other than that, <laughs> I, I, I only do 20, 20 minutes a day, but I, I went to a, um, meditation retreat and it was great because it was very freeing because I think a lot of people struggle with meditation just because they feel like they're not doing it right. 
you know, one of the things that I learned at this retreat was the importance of um, being dispassionate, which is really like not caring about how it's going, just like doing it, right? You know what I mean? It's like you need to be disciplined and dispassionate. So the discipline is like you sit down on the cushion every day and you put in your 20, 40 minutes, whatever, you know, 10 minutes, if, if that's what you get, you know, what you have time for. But the dispassionate piece is, yes, there's a way to breathe and you're supposed to like try to be in the moment and all this other kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, part of it is just like letting my brain wind down and letting the ideas sort of form in the bridge between my subconscious and my conscious to kind of clear things out so that there's no anxiety around those things. So that's why I like 20 minutes because I can kind of take the first seven to eight minutes and be totally dispassionate about quote unquote, how well I'm meditating and just let all these, like, I don't go in with an agenda, but I just let my brain run for a minute. And um, it's nice. Things just sort of like settle in and make sense. And I get this really good brainstorming stuff. And then like, I'm kind of tired of that. You know what I mean? And I just kind of go, Oh yeah, my breath. And then I return to my breath. And then usually for like the final 12 minutes, it's like this really fantastic, wonderful, deep, effortless meditation because like I didn't try to fight to avoid the thinking part if that makes sense so that's it's kind of a long answer it's not not very rapid but um that is well I, I did start meditating in the second half of that answer but besides that it was very <laughs> no, no no that's all it, it's cool how you kind of can feel that transition to the effortless portion there yeah and then what is a weird talent you have so maybe it's a it's a random talent it could be like a body trick or a memory trick, but it has absolutely no impact on your business. But for whatever reason, you're just really good at it. Ooh, oh, I'm 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 a really good rapper. Really? Yeah, yeah. But like that, it does nothing for me. Like I can't use it in any meaningful way. <laughs> have you Have you ever done it like uh, as part of your podcast or, as, or on one of your live sessions or anything? No, because it's because like like I'm a good rapper in like a legitimate sense. Right. And so if I use it in any of these other formats, it actually kind of like screws with it. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if I if I'm if I'm with my friends from college and you know, we're just sort of hanging out and like and we just sort of jump into a freestyle cipher, that's totally cool. But like me using it in a podcast, it's kind of like a parody of it. And so like that's why I, that's why I don't use it because I, I like to keep it as as pure as I possibly can. You know, that like I, I really appreciate and love hip hop music. I just, I, I wouldn't want to be on the record as like kind of uh, cheapening it. You know what I'm saying? And make, making it like a, like a, I don't know, a commercial or something like that for, hey, here's Marcus, the venture capital guy who also raps and listen to him rap. So yeah, <laughs> I, so I basically can never use it because I never want to, you know, sort of cheapen the art form. I see what you mean there. Well, we'll take the uh, clubhouse approach and make your listening to your rapping is a uh, referral or invite only. So only, only. Only, only select few can hear it. But that begs another question. Who's your favorite rapper of all time besides yourself? Uh, I'm definitely not my favorite rapper of all time. So that's, that's, that's easy, man. It is, it's, it's, it's a really, really difficult one, but I would, I would say all in all, for the entire catalog and everything that they've been able to accomplish, probably Jay-Z. Just, yeah. just hard to kind of top that longevity, the level of quality, the execution. And he's from Brooklyn and I'm from Brooklyn. So I just think it's it's hard it's hard to get better than him in my book. There you go. Yeah, it's it's hard to be 
any more iconic than that and the Pretty consistency hard. among the album absolutely crazy so marcus thank you so much for rapping no i'm just kidding thank you so <laughs> much for sharing your amazing stories and lessons and i literally get chills listening to you so it's it's just really appreciate everything you've done and how you've now put it in book form and sharing your story and inspiration with so many others where is the best place for people to connect with you and to buy your book marcuswhitney.com that's it man it's simple straightforward you can sign up for my email list there um if you go there right now there's a big old banner that says create and orchestrate number one amazon bestseller click here to buy it you know, you could buy it on Amazon. You could buy it. For, you could buy signed copies from my store, uh, creativepower.co. But if you just go to my website, like everything I'm doing is there, marcuswhitney.com. Love it. Easy enough. And then last thing, final thoughts. It could be a line from a Jay-Z song, which has actually been on this podcast before. Not Jay-Z, but a, a line from a song as part of final thoughts. <laughs> or it could be literally anything you want, a quote, kind of a, a motto, whatever you want. Final thoughts, send us off here. Yeah, my, my final thought, and this has kind of been my thought for the year, is build the new normal. Um, you know, we're, I, I don't want anyone to, to walk away from this conversation, you know, where we didn't really talk about the pandemic, to not understand this is still happening in the context of the pandemic. And, you know, this pandemic is a, this is a world-changing moment, and it's a super, super special moment. It's difficult, it's hard, it's challenging, but it is in many ways going to birth an entirely new world. You know, man, you have an opportunity, you're living in this moment, you know, if you can stay healthy, you know, stay positive and, and get your bills paid, you know, you might have an opportunity to like build what the new world is gonna look like. So I, I would just say, you know, try to keep the news to a minimum, you know, stay well-informed, don't be ignorant, but create, this is a time to create, you know, the, the number of opportunities that are emerging right now are un believable and so this is a time like you don't have to let the new normal happen to you you can build it create 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 thank you marcus for sharing your truly incredible story and lessons and thank you wild listeners for tuning into another episode if you want to hear more wild stories like this one make sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app and leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts you can also check us out on Good Pods, where you can find all the favorite podcasts your friends, family, and other favorite people, and pretty much everybody in the world is listening to. You can find out how HippoDirect can help you at HippoDirect.com. And of course, connect with us on your favorite social media platform, parenthesis S, at HippoDirect and Max Brandstetter. Until next time, let your business run wild. Bring on the bongos! <laughs> <laughs>